All right, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Genesis. And this morning we're going to be settling in on what is a very familiar story, except we are going to be focusing in on a passage that is not necessarily familiar. And in fact, it's a passage that in many ways is incredibly difficult. Now, we're in a series um, through the book of Genesis. And we started that series talking about the creation, a new beginning. And then last week, Pastor Eric talked to us about a new problem, this idea of sin that has now come into this new creation that God created and has now come into not only his creation, but into all of us who bear his image, his image bearers. And so it is now all of a sudden the reality that we have this new creation, but now we have this new problem called sin. And that all of a sudden now um, we have to deal with this new reality of the fact that the creation that God had made, the one that he envisioned, the one that he set us in, was perfect, was unbelievably perfect for every single one of us that we could exist. And I love this, as Pastor Eric shared last week, that Adam and Eve were naked and had no shame. And and that's really kind of a double understanding there. Not only did they not have shame in front of each other, but more importantly, they had no shame in the presence of God Himself. That Can you imagine someday that we will not have to be shame, or have shame rather, by being in the presence of God Himself? As glorious and as perfect as God is, and we will see Him fully, that we know confidently because we are followers of Jesus Christ, that we will be one day able to stand in His presence and not feel any shame. Oh, what a day that will be. Amen? Amen. What a day that will be to have no shame whatsoever. Now, here's the thing. Is that we have this thing of sin to deal with. And as we're going to see from the passage today, there are some questions that we are going to need to grapple with, that we're going to have to kind of wrestle with, because this passage is really, really difficult. So difficult that many theologians and scholars kind of skip over it or really have a really tough time. And I'm not going to say I've got any, you know, corner on the market on this passage that we're going to look at today. But I think that this passage that we're going to look at today is going to be a solution to this sin problem. Okay? We have creation, we have sin, and now what's the solution? Okay? It kind of is, it flows so beautifully here. But here's the thing. What is that solution? What is going to be that solution to now this reality of sin, okay? And that's what we're going to look at today. And in doing so, we're going to look at and think about, was there ever a time when sin got so bad? When sin got so bad that the only solution to it was to destroy everything. You know what the really interesting thing about the reality we live in today is that we know as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, is that no matter how bad things may get, no matter how bad we may sin, what do we know? We know Jesus. There's always a hope of salvation, right? But was there a time ever where there was so much bad sin that not even that was even possible, that the only way to resolve it was to destroy everything? And the answer is, Yes. The answer is yes. Things would get so bad with sin that God's only solution at this point would be to destroy everything. 
as hard as that it sounds, it is the only solution. And we're going to take a look as to why things got so bad. How did they get so bad? And why don't things like this get that bad today? If you think things are bad today, you didn't live in this time. Guarantee you, as bad as we know things are today, let me just say this, and I'm going to perk you right up here, okay? You're going to be glad you came to church today. I've got some things I've got to share with you today, church. And I want you to listen. It could get a lot worse. If you think things are bad now, it could always get a lot worse. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Right? Pastor told me the obvious. It could always get worse. Here's the other side. Is that because of what happens in this story today? Things can always and will get better. Amen. You cannot have one without the other. And that's because of what we're going to learn today in this story. And this story is a very common, famous story. You may not even have read the Bible. I hope you have. But it's the story of Noah and the flood. Oh, you see it in children's books, right? Uh, you see it all over, and it's how it's depicted. It's so beautiful and so innocent, right? It, it's interesting. If you've ever been to Estes Park, um, they have the Noah's Ark right there. Uh, I don't know if it's to scale. It probably isn't. There's one to scale, I believe, in Kentucky. You can go and see that one in Kentucky. Uh, but it's a bookstore, and it, it's a beautiful-looking ark. I mean, you know, and you see the children's book, and you see the animals going in two by two, and it's wonderful, the little bunnies and the snakes and you know because it had to be snakes right because they exist today so you know that two mosquitoes going in i mean they probably were never welcome but you couldn't stop those guys from coming in right two flies coming in you know two birds and and two lions and two cheetahs and you know two hippopotamuses where would you put those things you know uh and and two alligators oh now there's a party going on there right i mean but it's just so so innocent but The story behind that was the reality is that the world had gotten so evil that the only solution was to destroy it all and start essentially over, not completely over. So the question is today, what happened? How did it get so bad? And what is this? And the title of today's message is A New Promise. A New Promise. That's the title of today's message, A New Promise. What was it that out of this, we have this new promise that on the other side of this story, we all live in that new promise. What is it about that new promise that is so special? That is so, for lack of a better word, awesome. It's just awesome. That we know today we can sit in these seats and we can say things like, yeah, it could could be a lot worse, but you know what? It's going to get a lot better. So today we're going to take a look at this passage. And I'm sorry, if you have a bulletin this morning, the passages that are listed there are not going to be the passages necessarily that I'll be in exclusively. We're going to back it up a little bit. We're going to be in Genesis 6 right there. That's where we're going to start. But as we work through this, there are a few things, four things specifically, that I want us to learn about sin and about this promise. Four specific things, okay? And the first truth I want us to learn as we look at today's text is this. Sin is worse than you and I could ever imagine. Let me say that again. Let me say this again. I want this to sink in to our minds. Sin is worse than you and I could ever imagine. Sin is worse than you and I could ever imagine. 
Here's why. And we're going to learn about this as we come in today's text. Sin is often seen as the outside, the external, and the things we see such as violence, death, destruction, lying, cheating, relational strife, etc., etc., etc. But that isn't necessarily sin. That's the effects of sin. That's the effects of sin. Sin is much more ingrained than what you and I can often see. Sin is ingrained in us, in our very beings, in our own hearts, our minds, our attitudes. It is what makes this so dangerous, more than you and I could possibly ever know. Take a look here. In fact, this is interesting of what says about Genesis 6 and the world in which all of a sudden now we realize how bad sin really can be and why it was even worse than what we may experience today. Beginning with verse 1. It says this, and this, I'm going to warp your minds. Well, I'm not. The scripture is. It's going to be a mind bender, okay? Now, it came about when men, human beings, began to multiply on the face of the land. Now, that was God-given directive, right? Adam and Eve are created. God tells Adam and Eve, go and multiply. So they're doing just that, okay? They're doing just that. They're getting together in a biblical sense, and they're having kids, okay? They're doing this. They're multiplying. And daughters were born to them, and sons, but the daughters are the most important part here in this story. Okay, this sets up, I believe, the flood. And the daughters are born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. B-E-A-U-T-ful. They were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And now here is verse 4. Mindbender, get ready for it. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they, were, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who are of old, men of renown. Now, what in the world is this all about? What is, what is going on here? And why was this so important, I believe, to the story of Noah? Oftentimes, as I shared at the beginning here, Scholars and theologians, many of them, will kind of separate this part because they just don't, I think for the most part, understand what, what this is all about. It's really difficult. And I've had conversations with some of you about this. And it's really difficult. Alright? So I'm going to try to do my best to, under, to share with you what I think this is. It's not what it is. There may be other interpretations of this. But to understand Jewish kind of um, understanding of you know, fallen angels and all of that kind of stuff kind of maybe bring some understanding to what may be happening here. Here is the deal, most likely, from my understanding of this, is what was going on, is that fallen angels, sons of God, okay, fallen angels, fallen angels, that is the understanding, at least from many Jewish perspectives here, that these were sons of God, were actually God. Some people would say, well, that they're actually humans or something like that. No, no, no. They are, they are like Fallen angels. That's the closest we can understand this. Okay? These fallen angels looked at daughters or the women, human women, and saw them attractive. And so what did they do? 
They married them and bore them children that became these people called the Nephilim who were incredibly powerful, tall, unbelievably wicked people from what we read. And this is why sin all of a sudden now takes on a turn that we have never seen since. What happens when all of a sudden now you join a fallen angel with a human who produces an offspring? It's not good. It's not good at all. Now, some of you might be thinking, I didn't think angels could, could you know, reproduce. Well, there's some, the scriptures on that are, are kind of vague. You really have to read into that in my opinion. But all of a sudden now, what do you have when you all of a sudden marry a fallen angel with a fallen human? Wow, you really have sin on steroids. You have sin on steroids. In fact, what you have here is super sinners. You have sinners that are so good at it that they don't even have the capacity at this point to even be saved to even understand or even have the concept or the capacity for God's grace to even speak into their lives. They are that fallen, that lost. In fact, in some ways, the way that this text reads in the Hebrew is that the evilness of this time was so bad that even on the most basic level of existence, people were absolutely doing unbelievably evil things. Things that you and I would probably not even conceive of. That's how evil these things are. And yet, that is the power of sin. Sin now is not only married in this case to the soul of a person. It is now in the heart of this person. They don't even have the capacity to understand that what they are doing is necessarily so evil that they can't even bring up the concept of what is good at this point. Are you with me still? Did I lose you? I mean, this is really kind of mind-bending stuff, right? Mind-bending stuff. In fact, here is the thing that as we were going to see, what happened to them after the flood? That finally God says, you know what? This is just really way over. What happens to these people after the flood? Well, there are some thoughts about that. Is that these Things are destroyed except the fallen angels who are immortal continue to live, but now they become demons. And they always have to have a place, a body to inhabit. And we see this in the New Testament where Jesus encounters demon-possessed people. And when he calls them out, for instance, this one gentleman that he encounters in this Gentile town and he calls out the demons and there are so many of them that demons ask, no, 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 please do not cast us out. Rather, send us into the pigs. They have to have some body to inhabit. Right? You're kind of going, well, maybe, Dan. Now you lost me. Right? I mean, this, is, this gets... In other words, what became so much and that the race of these Nephilim would be destroyed because they are just now super sinners where now you have taken the spiritual and married it to the physical in a way where you had fallen angels with fallen man and produced an unbelievable violent race that it just could not have the concept or even the chance of salvation had to be destroyed. You see, I know we don't think like this, but that's how powerful sin can be. Sin is so powerful. In fact, I love what 
The pastor, John Piper, says about sin, he says this, what is sin? What is sin, right? We understand that sin may be missing the mark or whatever else. This is how he defines sin. It is the glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not cherished. The presence of God not prized. The person of God not loved. That is sin. And that was sin here on steroids. That is sin. Sin indwells so much into who we are, into our hearts. In fact, listen to some of these passages. Jeremiah 17.9. Jeremiah writes just unbelievably blatant about people's sin and where it actually exists and where it comes from. And he says this in 17.9. He says this, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately what? Sick. Circle that. Your heart, my heart, is sick. Who can understand it? Who can fathom how sick our heart is? Titus 1.15 says the following, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Matthew 15, 8. This people, Jesus says, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And verse 19 says, finally, in that, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murderers, adulterers, fornicators, thefts, false witnesses, slanderers. That is sin. Sin is worse than you and I could possibly ever imagine. Let me share something with you. I, I, I necessarily... Uh, I'm going to try it. And you can all crucify me at the end here. Let me tell you how bad sin is, in case you just need any more reminding of it. Okay? And, and how bad and how just unbelievably sin can get into things and just absolutely twist it into such a way as to produce such incredible amount of hatred and even violence. It's just terrible. If you need any more reminder, just look at what happened a few weeks ago in our own capital. There was a whole bunch of disturbing images that came from there, right? Of police officers getting hit, of people smashing windows and all that kind of stuff. But one of the more, also in addition to that, disturbing images that I saw were people were bringing in Bibles, holding them up, were bringing in banners of saying, Jesus saves, as though what they were doing was the Lord's work. What brought them to that point? What brought them to such a degree as to think that they, what they were doing there was the Lord's work and that they were giving Jesus credit, that they were being a witness for Jesus, for all of our politicians who are just simply lost, and only certain politicians, by the way. We have these unbelievable things that are out there. And I'm going to get really, really tough this morning. This QAnon thing. What a terrible thing that some person or persons comes up with a theory that is believed by P 
people and Christians too about saying that another side, a political side, are a bunch of pedophilias who are hiding children as sex slaves. And we believe it. Some of you might be thinking, Pastor, you can't talk about politics here. That's not right. Let me just say something about that. If the Scriptures in the Bible isn't relevant to all areas of your life, including your political life, then chances are it isn't relevant to any area of your life. Do I need to say that again? If the Scriptures, the Bible, and people, are you listening to me online? Because I know I'm probably going to get some comments. If the Scriptures or the Bible isn't relevant to any particular area of your life, i.e. your political life, then chances are it isn't relevant to any area of your life. What kind of belief holds up an individual, I don't care if it's our previous president or anybody else, to a Savior-like status and says that person is the only one who can save us? Seriously? What kind of cockamamie, and yes, I said cockamamie, Belief system is that. I am most disappointed in Christians. And by the way, I am one. And yes, I believe there's a reckoning coming. That we as Christ followers will have to answer for the stuff we believed in and more than that, the stuff we did in the name of Jesus. Can I just make a suggestion? And this is something that maybe not all of you will follow, but I hope you will. Whatever you get your news from, maybe it's talk radio, maybe it's cable news, Maybe it's the newspapers, wherever else. If after you read it, it makes you want to hate the other person, hate the other side, let me just give you a piece of advice. Stop reading it. Turn it off. That's what sin can do. Sin can take Christians who know better because we know the truth and to embrace flat-out lies. And not just lies, harmful lies. Destructive lies. Lies that cause people to go and commit violence and to kill someone and think they're doing it in the name of Jesus. Let me tell you, I, I don't know necessarily where Jesus might be. I do believe He's everywhere. But I'll tell you where He is not with us. And that's when we do stuff like that. Ever. That's how bad sin can be. It can make you think you're doing something right when in actuality you are doing something so wrong you can't even see it. That's the situation here in Noah's day. It was so terrible, so wrong, so bad with these Nephilim, these these beings who were super sinners that didn't even have the capacity to even accept God's grace And not only that, because of the fact that they were such sinful beings that they now corrupted even more than it was possible to corrupt creation. That the only solution was destruction. Take this very seriously, brothers and sisters. Sin is incredibly destructive. It is more destructive than you and I could ever possibly imagine. If we do not understand this, we cannot understand fully the rest of the Scriptures. If we do not come to grips 
with our own sin and with sin in general and how destructive it is, we will never fully understand the rest of the Scriptures. That's just point one. <laughs> you got a little time? Wow. Are you with me still, church? Number two. As bad as sin is, and it's worse than you and I could ever imagine, here's the other truth. Sin grieves God's heart more than you and I could ever imagine. Sin grieves God's heart more than you and I could ever imagine. Take a look at the following verses here in Genesis 6 through 8. And this is what is told. The Lord, it says here, and he says this in verse 5, Remember, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, theologians, and I'm one of them, will oftentimes maybe look at a passage like that and ask questions like, oh, does that mean God changed his mind? Oh, no, no, does that mean that, that God was you know, repenting here because that's what the word sorry means here? Does that mean that God was repenting? And does that mean if he was repenting and he changed his mind, does that mean he's really God? Because if he's God, then he shouldn't ever have to change his mind. And if he's God, he should never have to re repent because he's never sinning and all this kind of stuff. Do you know what this passage... Are you with me? Do you know what this passage says? God was grieved. He was absolutely grieved. The shortest verse in the Bible is what? Yeah, you know that one. It's a great verse. Two words. Jesus wept. Part of our human understanding is the fact or misunderstanding is that we sometimes think that God can't be human. No, 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 no. God is the perfect human embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And we sometimes think, and I disagree with this thinking, that now Jesus, oh, he's finally, when he, when he rose from the dead, he was resurrected and ascended into heaven. He finally now is God once again, and he lost his humanity. No, he has not. I believe he's still in a physical body. I believe he is up there fully as he all meant us to be. Fully human. In all of its glory. Humans are not a bad thing. Wear your skin proudly. The problem isn't the fact that God is grieving. The problem is the fact we can't understand fully the fact that God does grieve. That He actually has emotions. Those emotions are good. It grieves His heart. When it says here that He was sorry and that he was grieved, and it, it, it right into the core of who he is. He was grieved to his heart for what he has done. Remember, he created us because he loved us. Remember, he, he embodied in us his own spirit. And we are alive and we're a testimony to who he is. And now all of a sudden we've taken that and we've corrupted it. Why wouldn't he be sad? Why wouldn't he grieve it? No, we've got to theologize it. Theologize it, whatever it is. We've got to make it all about theology. Well, you know, God, I don't know if he can repent. Oh, I don't know. 
Doesn't matter. He's sad. Deal with it. Do you know that sin breaks God's heart? Every time you and I sin, it breaks His heart. Think about that. Those of you who are parents, you, you might have a little sense of what that means. You ever had a child do something that just breaks your heart? Maybe you had a parent that says, you know what, I'm not mad. Maybe use this line to you. I'm just disappointed. It's like you let them down. It just hurts. God weeps over and grieves over sin. And you know what he grieves most over in our own lives, each and every one of us? It says this in the scriptures. He grieves over a hard heart. A heart that will not be open to him. A heart that will not be open to his love. A heart that will not be open to his forgiveness. A heart that will not be open to his compassion. A heart that will not be open to his healing. That is what God grieves over because he realizes there is nothing, and get this, now I'm going to do something else that people are going to go, oh my gosh, you mean God can't do something? No, God chooses not to force us to choose him at any time. And it grieves him that people reject him. Cuts to the heart. It's like, it's like saying to someone who likes you, yeah, can we just be friends? Not even that. It's even worse. God grieved over his creation. God grieved over who, what has happened here. God is grieving over the fact of how rampant sin has now run. And now he knows that the only solution here is absolute destruction. Do you think that made God happy? I realize that there are probably people out there who look at God and that God wakes up every morning, or like he ever sleeps. But, you know, all of a sudden, new day and says, all right, Michael, Gabriel, who are we going to smite today? Get the board out. You know, price is right. Spin it. Right? Boom. Okay. Dan's gone. I'm going to smite him today. No! He isn't looking for people to smite. He's looking for people to save. He's looking for people to heal. He's looking for people who will love him. That's who he wants. And so this isn't making God happy. This might play into that idea that God, all he is, is just this judgmental, evil, you know, just angry guy. No! He is grieved, realizing how sinful things become, but he's also grieved because he knows the only solution is destruction. Have you ever had to let a child go their own way? Knowing that doing so, you know where they're going to end up. Have you ever had to let a friend go their own way because of a choice that they were making that you knew was destructive and harmful and was not going to end well, but you had to let them go their own way? Oh, that breaks God's heart as much as it would break ours. And it's absolute destruction. It grieves His heart. Because this is the only thing that can be done about sin. This is truth number three. 
Sin has to be destroyed. Sin has to be destroyed. You can't bargain with sin. You can't appease sin. You can't work out some living arrangement with sin. You just can't do it. Sin doesn't operate that way. It will destroy everything. It says this in verses 9 through 13. These are the records of the generations of Noah because Noah, out of everyone there, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Chances are he was not a product of a fallen angel with a fallen human. But still, was he perfect? No, he was not perfect, but at least he was righteous. He knew who God was, he sought God, and God had chosen him. And he says, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And and behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. And there we come to the Noah story. Will you ever look at the Noah story the same again? That the only way to deal with this was to destroy it. And by the way, the Hebrew word here, to destroy, means to completely annihilate. Complete destruction. Leave nothing standing. Period. And now we have the story. 